as a kid, our family traveled a lot. We lived just north of Philadelphia, and so we were considered the Southerners. Now, I imagine many of you that grew up down here can't imagine Philadelphia being Southerners, but we were the most further down one that we had. Most of our family was in Connecticut, uh, New York, New Hampshire, and then a, bit, a little bit later, it was all going up to Maine. And we traveled a lot because we were like at the bottom of the group of our whole family group. We did a lot of traveling. And I remember when I was a kid, one of the things that we went to is we went to a very, very famous place, a place um, that I think is coming up right here. There it is. A place there in Massachusetts where along Plymouth Rock, where I think your family was at. Is that right, Rachel? Yes. And she cracked that big rock open so big. No, it's not. She didn't do that. But it has been broken up many times, unfortunately. But that was a very interesting place. But you know, I was a kid when I was there. My uncle was there. His name was Fingal. How many people do you know that could name their kids Fingal anymore? But that was a very popular name up there among the Swedes, um, to name somebody Fingal. Uh, and then my Aunt Ruth was there. And so we would go a number of times. We would go over to Plymouth Rock, where the Mayflower was, and we'd go through Plymouth Plantation. And you know, I was like, for about two minutes, I found that interesting. After that, it was, where are the rocks that I can throw? So I didn't really get the whole, appreciate it, the whole thing. But you know, in older times, I'm glad that I've been able to go, and I hope I'll be able to go again. But it is interesting, that picture, that wonderful picture of here they were, having gone through a, just a very difficult you know, journey from England, had a really hard winter, but now they had their first full crop. And we know there were Native Americans that were there that helped them and were there. <clears throat> and it was a very special time. And a big part of that was giving thanks. They had lost people along the way. There had been sadness. There had been disease. And yet here they were to realize, here we are in this, what for us just seems almost like the wilderness. But God was there. And here they're giving this great thanks for God. And it is important for us to see that here in our own country, and maybe it seems to be disappearing today, but we once were a country where we recognized that was important. We valued that. We were thankful that we could look to a providential God who worked on our lives and how thankful we were to be able to do that. And it's interesting, after that first time when they had it, they continued it. Other groups and other, even, even other states started doing that special times of having times of prayer and thanksgiving. And of course, it was during the time of the Civil War, of all places, when Abraham Lincoln made it a national thing that every year at the same time that we would have a time of thanksgiving. Now, I don't think you could do that today in today's culture, but they did then, and it was very, very important. And for them to recognize that here in the midst of a terrible slaughter of north versus south, there was still time to stop and give praise to God. Even though in the battlefield it was carnage everywhere you could see, there was still a sense of we can thank God that we are alive, that God has given us an opportunity, and that we can worship him. You know, it's interesting when we talk about how we worship and what we want to do and how we want our lives to count and all the things we do and how we want to honor God, it's have that sense of gratitude, that our lives have been touched by God and we want to make sure that we let him know that we appreciate, we're grateful for all he did. Unfortunately, for a lot of times, we find in people not gratitude, but ingratitude. Speaking of Abraham Lincoln, there's an interesting story that happened. There had been another terrible battle. There had been another, th another thousand dead on the ground. And in the midst of that, though, he called a certain young surgeon 
who'd been there in the battle, and he said, I'd like to meet with this man. Go get him for me. And so they went to get him, and when this guy, who was a surgeon, young man, major in the Union Army, when he heard that Abraham Lincoln wanted to talk to him, he was like so excited, he could hardly believe it. He's like, me? Abraham Lincoln wants to talk to me? I'm only a major. He doesn't even talk to half of the generals, let alone me. He said, no, I want to talk to him. And this guy was so thrilled, and he was so proud, he was so arrogant, saying, I'm, I'm here to meet the president. And the president came in, and they talked a little bit, and they had a little discussion about another terrible battle. Thank you for what you're eating. He told the major, thank you so much for you're doing. We have so many wounded. We're so glad that you're doing everything you can. He said, but I want to ask you one simple question. He asked the major, I got one simple question. He goes, how's your mom doing? He went, oh, great. She, terrific. She's, she's doing really well. Said, You're sure? Oh, yeah. Yeah, mom's great. But thank you so much for asking. And he said, really? I just happened to have a letter from your mother. And your mother thinks you're dead. And the letter says, would you please make sure, do everything you can find to find the body of my son. He's somewhere out in that last battle. If you find him, would you let us know, and we'll pay for having to be sent back to our home. And of course, the guy was just kind of crestfallen. He, he hadn't talked to his mother. His mother assumed he was dead. And he told the guy, sit down. And he sat down. And he handed him a pen and said, I'll sit here and wait while you write this letter to your mother. And every mother goes, thanks, God, for that. You know, but that was a fascinating thing. Here was a guy who didn't even have enough concern to even say, thankful. Thank you, Mom. Thank you. Didn't even care about it. And it's so easy for us to fall into ingratitude instead of gratitude and the difference that makes in our lives. We're going to be looking for a few minutes in a passage about gratitude that's probably not the one that you'd be expecting. In fact, the passage we're going to be looking at is coming out of the book of Ezra. And I think it's going to come out of the book of Ezra. There it is. No, it's not. There it is. It's going to be dealing with gratitude. And our passage is going to be found in the book of Ezra. I know many of you have you know, kind of memorized the book of Ezra. But for those who haven't, it's there early in the, New, in the Old Testament. And it's talking about the fact of what God has done for his people. And what happens, we say, in the book of Ezra is a turning point in the life of God's people. And it's very, very significant. And what we have in this passage is just to give a little review. Just remember what's going on in the story. We remember that at Mount Sinai, when God got his people out of, Israel, out of Egypt, and that he made there a covenant, a contract, let's say, with Israel. I will be your God. You will be my children. And I will bless you. And I will honor you. And I will help you. And I will help fight your battles. And I'll be with you for all that you need. And God gave him two tablets to describe the law. Here's the ten things. And then, of course, we know from the on they traveled with, I mean, there were more and more laws. But the point was, here's what you're going to do. And I'm going to be with you. And we'll make a contract. But beware of one thing. If you will continue to honor me, I will continue to provide for you. I'll continue to fight your battles. But... If you turn away to other gods, remember the Ten Commandments, you should have no other gods before me. He said, if you turn away to other gods and you refuse to repent and you continue to do this, I will bring judgment upon you. And I'm going to bring terrible judgment upon you, not because I hate you, but because I will do everything I had to do to bring you back into relationship with me. And of course, we know what happened 
We know that for a while there were some very, very good kings. God gave them the law and things were good for them. We know that there were things that happened along the way. And we know for the fact that we had David was a great king, a wonderful king. And we know the fact that, you know, he had Solomon who was sort of a great king, wise but not wise when it comes to women for one thing. And from Rehoboam, who was not too smart. And we had a line of kings of Judah, most of them who were not too good. We had a couple great ones. Hezekiah, a great man of God. Josiah, another great man. But in general, God's people continued to turn away from him. Not all of them. There were always people, a remnant of men, people that loved God. But in general, we start seeing more and more lousy kings, generation after generation, to the point when finally God says, I'm going to have to do this. I've asked you to live in covenant fellowship with me. You refuse to do it. Judgment is coming. And nobody likes to hear a story about judgment. And yet we had people like Jeremiah. Here's an old picture of Jeremiah talking to the king of Judah, saying, here is what God's going to do. He will bring judgment upon you. He is not only going to bring judgment, he's going to tear down this beautiful temple that we've had for all these years. There's going to be, you're going to be carried along upon all the different places among the world. All this tragedy will come, and it doesn't have to be this way. Come back to me. Repent. Find salvation through me. Come to me. And yet the people didn't do it. And so if we know the last 20, 30 years before it all happened, there was like one king after another, and they were all mostly losers to the very end. And finally, in the midst of the people, all the mess, the, ba the, ba the Babylonians came in and said, these people are weak, let's take them over. And it was awful. The destruction of the beautiful temple. People were taken away. The cream of the crop were sent away back to Babylon. They were treated horribly at first. Things got better after a while. But the, prom I mean, the promise that God made saying, I will bring judgment if you do not repent, they experienced it. They kept saying, the temple, the temple, it'll never happen. God would never let his temple be burned down. And Jeremiah, like in that picture, in that picture, is here going, I'm telling you, it will. And he's called sometimes the weeping prophet. The weeping prophet crying out for his people saying, don't you realize it? Haven't you heard what God has said? He's telling you if you don't turn away, there's going to be judgment. And the people are going, the temple, the temple, the temple. God lives in the temple. You don't think God's temple is going to fall down, do you? And Jeremiah saying, yeah. And they put him in a cistern. He was down there in the water with the people, down there in that water. And they brought him up and they did him in. They put him in chains. And he kept saying, it's going to happen. I'm telling you, it's coming. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to take you all out. This will be God's judgment. And they're like, no, it ain't going to happen. And then it happened. And it was awful. And it was terrible. And the city was destroyed. Most of the people who were somebodies were gone, carried off to Babylon. And it was awful. One of the worst things that ever happened to the people of God. Many people were scattered. Things were very awful. What happens, of course, as you know the story, is that they were carried away. Some of them started new homes or businesses. Some of them had to work the fields. But they realized that there was a prophecy that God had given them, a prophecy of saying, stay here. You're, God, is, you know, God has sent you here to that Babylonian area. You're going to be here, but it's not forever. In 70 years, I will bring you back. Now, I imagine if I was living there and it had been 20 years, Really? Do you think it's really going to happen? 
a lot of these people had already started farms and you know jobs and things like that. And people were saying, that's not going to happen. But Jeremiah told them, 70 years. You're not staying here. You're going to go out. And so we have that exile where after 586 where they were destroyed. And so what they said is, okay, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, sure, it's coming. We keep hearing that. But it's not been 70 years yet. And then we have one of the great miracles that we often forget. It's in the first year, this is the book of Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. It took 70 years. But God in his mercy said, you know what? I'm going to bring you back. I'm not just sending that back to what? There's nothing there anymore. The temple's been destroyed. A lot of the, the big rocks have been moved away and milked down other places. But no, it said in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. Now notice this next phrase. The Lord put it into the mind of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom. And he put it in writing. And what he wrote was this. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms in the earth and has appointed me to build a house at Jerusalem in Judah. This is something that seems almost impossible to believe. Not only are they going to be let go, he's going to send them out. He's going to restore. He didn't take all, but a lot of the treasures that they had captured, he gave back to them and said, okay, guys, you can go home. Now imagine that. If you've been away so long, for many even 70 years, and then it says, you know what? You're all free to go home. What an unbelievable moment that must have been. Now, what we know is a lot of the people didn't go home. They said, listen, we've been through enough. I got a good store. We're making money. You know, why do I want to go to that place? Who wants to cross a desert to go over there? But many people who love the Lord said, I'll go. I know there's nothing there. I mean, we're starting from scratch all over again, but I'll go. And so what we see, that he said, oh, you can do it. You can build a house. Whoever is among the people, may his God, this is, this is, the, this is him saying, may God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who's in Jerusalem. Again, if 50 years ago somebody had said, this is all going to happen, you're coming back, people say, yeah, baloney, ain't going to happen. God keeps his promises. And this is the case here. He's got a Persian king saying, not only can you go home, we're going to give you most of the stuff that we took from you, and we're going to make sure that you can go, and they're going to let you be there, and you're going to start over again, and you can build another city. You can build another temple. And it's like, is this possible? And it was possible, and it did happen. And what we know is what happened in Ezra chapter 3. We'll pick it up here. Chapter 2, it describes the fact how they started having sacrifices outside. They didn't have a temple. They started sacrificing, I mean, started having a day of thanksgiving kind of thing with them, a day of time of that. But what they knew is that ultimately we want to build the temple. We want to rebuild that temple that was destroyed 70 years ago. And so what happened in chapter 2, we read about this now. And it says right here, these now are the people of the province who came to those captive exiles to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, had deported to Babylon. Each of them returned to his hometown, Jerusalem and Judah. In other words, a number of them came. They came with, and then here's some of the names you do know, Zerubbabel was one of the most famous ones, Jeshua, Nehemiah is the one we know best, Sariah, and then there's like several others that most of us, including me, don't even know who they are. But the point of it is, God was filling, fulfilling the prophecy of saying that they would get to go back. About 42,000 plus is what they think came at that point. 
Now, knowing that background and knowing that the focus of this is on thanksgiving, listen to what happens in these next couple verses. When the builders, this is chapter, I mean, verse 10, when the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, that was one of the first things they have to do is get a great foundation. And you can imagine the excitement when these guys are finally getting all these blocks together. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals, they took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed them. And so we see in that next verse, they sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And notice this phrase in yellow that we still use today in a lot of our worship. For he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. And that was a great thing. They were singing this. And chant, I don't know if it's singing or chanting. But the point was, they were going to God saying, look at what you've done. God is good. He's faithful. He said he'd bring us back. He has. He said we'd get to rebuild a temple. We're starting. We have almost nothing, but we're going to start. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. It would take years to rebuild it. And when they did, it would look puny and small compared to the great temple of Solomon. But it was theirs, and God met them there. And so it says, because they had praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But notice this next slide. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family leaders who'd seen the first temple, they wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this house, but many others shouted joyfully. Do you see the picture? These have got to be old people. These are men and women that must be in their 80s or 90s. They were children who survived the apocalypse that happened there when the temple was destroyed, when people were carried away. And they looked at that little puny temple where they're just starting to work. And for them, there must have been this sense of overwhelming sadness. Look what we lost, the thousands that were killed, those that died on the way back to Babylonia. And so people, some of them are shouting, yay, great, this is wonderful, we're starting, things are going. And there's older folks that are there that are weeping. They're remembering their grandma who couldn't, couldn't make the journey, who died along the way. They can remember this person, this, this place. And, and they look at that great place where the Temple of Solomon was one of the great, greatest places in the world. And all there was was rubble. But they had a foundation. And they were starting. And so some of them are shouting and some are excited. And some of them, they want to be excited too, but their hearts are still broken because of where they were and what they used to have. And what they had now, it was nothing. But in the midst of that, talking about mixed emotion, emotions, even though their hearts were breaking, they were still giving thanks to God. They, many of them thought, we'll never get back to this place. And now they're here. And who would have thought it? How would, God, how would they get him back? Because God, in his sovereignty, went to a pagan Persian king and said, let them go. Not only let them go, let them take all their stuff with them. And you help them, and you tell them they'll be safe. And God, in his mercy, brings them to that point. And there are people now whose lives are full of gratitude. Gratitude and praise for who God is and what he has done. Then the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was they could be heard from far away. There's that phrase again. 
And it's interesting what you see when we think about this story in Ezra. Let's see how this story, in many ways, is very similar to what happened to the people of Israel in their great redemption, where God took them out of Egypt. For example, the people in Israel were in bondage. Okay? What happened? God gave them a promise. What was the promise? That God is going to bring you free from that place. And, of course, in the, at the Red Sea, there's where God did it. He delivered them. And what did they do when they got to the other side? They got together and the women were singing with tambourines and they were shouting and they were crying. God had redeemed them. And for them, that was their great thanksgiving. But now think about it this way. That's true of our Israel. It's true for the people in Ezra's time. It's true about us today, spiritually speaking. That is, we know as people who are born into this world, that we're fallen. We've all sinned. We've all made mistakes. We've all turned away from God. All of us are in bondage to the evil one. All of us are people who have, had, have done wrong. And yet, in that bondage that we have, there is hope. There's a promise. If you will come to me by repentance and faith, recognizing that your sin alienates you from God, that if you will come in repentance and say, Lord, I blew it. I know it. You don't have to tell me that I'm a sinner. I've known I've messed up my life. But I'm coming to you. The Lord says, you are more than welcome. There is forgiveness. There's restoration. There's holiness. There's healing. And so in that promise and in that deliverance, they could respond to that in thanksgiving of what God has done for us. And that's exactly for us. The bondage we're in spiritually, the promise of repentance will bring us to relationship, deliverance is found in Christ, and in thanksgiving as his people. That's how we respond. We respond with the people who know that we have experienced a great gift from God. There is nothing you could ever do if you tried every day of your life to in some ways earn what Christ has already done for us, all we can do is accept what Christ has done, offering us his deliverance through faith in him. And for us as believers, Thanksgiving ought to be one of the most significant days for us. I don't know about you, but in some ways, I like Thanksgiving better than Christmas. Christmas is so much, you know, how much are you spending, how much are you buying, tearing up the back packages. There's something nice about Thanksgiving. It's not as commercialized. And there's a sense of saying, Lord, would you open my eyes to see ways that I can honor you in praise, giving you the glory that you deserve to know that you are our king. That's the great gift we have at this time of the year. I'm thankful for it. Colossians chapter 3, and with this we're done. There's this beautiful phrase, let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and whatever you do in word or a deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice this phrase, giving thanks to the Father through him. Through Christ, we bring our thanksgiving to him. That is a great gift for us, that we can come through the Lord Jesus and know that that is coming to our Father in heaven, our Redeemer, our King. And it's a time for us to be able to worship him and worship well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We wouldn't think of the book of Ezra necessarily as a place where we can learn about thanking you, but, Father, they had a great reason to thank you. 
They were a generation that got to see your hand at work in remarkable ways, turning the mind and the heart of a pagan king, sending them back to a devastated land, showing them that you are faithful to all your promises. Father, in just a few minutes, we're going to be singing a couple songs, a couple more following that. We would pray that our hearts would be touched by your word, by what you've done, what you're doing, that it would not just be singing, but it would be part of our honoring you and thankfulness for all that you've done. Be with us. Help us now, we pray, as we continue in our singing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.